0: This is Ed Linenthal, Executive Editor of the Journal of American History. During the sesquicentennial years of the Civil War, the Organization of American Historians is committed to bringing the best current thinking on this complex era to a wide audience. We aim to explore the war from its beginnings through its aftermath. As part of this goal, the OEH is pleased to offer a series of podcast conversations with distinguished historians. During 2012, we are focusing on mobilizing for war. Today, we are speaking with Dave Ruth, superintendent of the Richmond National Battlefield Park, and Mike Gorman, National Park Service ranger and historian at Richmond National Battlefield Park. Dave and Mike, welcome, and thanks so much for taking the time to do this podcast with us.
1: Thank you. Yeah,
2: thanks for having us with you today.
0: Oh, as you know, this is part of our Uh, Civil War series podcast and the theme of 2012 is mobilizing for war and we thought it would be very interesting for listeners uh, for us to focus on Richmond at war Uh, and perhaps a good avenue into this subject is for both of you to talk some about uh, the creation of Richmond National Battlefield Park, the importance of Tredegar to the park and the history of Tredegar, both before the Civil War, during the civil War and and after, so take us take listeners through the creation of uh, Richmond National Battlefield Park and the significance of Tredegar in that story.
2: Well, and maybe I'll start real quick on the the park story because I think it's a it's a very interesting and very unusual one. Richmond Battlefield was not one of those that was selected to be commemorated by the national government in the in the nineteenth century. As a matter of fact, it stood forgotten for for decades after the Civil War, and it wasn't until the early nineteen hundreds when a group of actually Richmond historians, business people got together and decided that it was very important to to commemorate these battles on the local level. And leading that group is none other than Douglas Sathwell Freeman, who is uh, so well-known as probably the premier historian of the Army in Northern Virginia, and and Robert E. Lee. Uh, But he and his cohorts um, began a process of identifying properties and is and talking to landowners and assembling a very small group of of parks by donation and the acreage totaled you know somewhere around seven hundred and fifty when they were all through, and it encompassed the major battlefields around Richmond, just little postage stamp pieces of them. And in addition to that they interpreted them with what today we still call Freeman markers and one can travel around Richmond and see sixty one of them I believe that's how many might something like something that. like that sixty one of them they're they're um, stone or granite markers with bronze tablets and they do a really good job in in three sentences to talk about the significance of, of the spot. And so um, their their role was very important to begin the groundwork of preserving Richmond's battlefields that I might add um, became the first state park for the state of Virginia in the 1930s when they transferred them to the Commonwealth. And then almost simultaneously in 1936, it was a bill that was passed to make this a national park. So in between 1936 when the legislation passed and about 1944, Uh, In the middle of World War II, when all the titles were being cleared, Richmond Battlefield was becoming, in fact, another component of the National Park Service system. And today, that it's grown from 750 acres that was originally established to uh, well over 2,200 that we, we currently manage. And real quickly, the visitor center was always a problem. As a matter of fact, the first visitor center of the park was the clubhouse of uh, Douglas Seth L. Freeman and his friends at Fort Harrison a wonderful uh, log cabin. We still use it today, but it had outgrown its role quickly. And on the eve of the centennial, a weather bureau station here in Richmond, uh, where we're currently sitting today, was offered to the National Park Service as the main visitor center. And it was a smallish building. And there was approximately 1,100 square feet of exhibits put in. And dedicated, like I said, on the eve of the centennial, and it was rife with the centennial type of interpretation, lost cause interpretation, and very, very unique exhibits that are very telling for the the times. And then real quickly, the ending of the story comes uh, when the National Park Service was working on our general management plan in 1996, And at that point we had known that Chimborazo, which is the site of that weather station, site of the Confederacy's, uh, one of the Confederacy's largest hospitals. We had known by that time that the building and the facility had uh, grown woefully small for the, the task ahead of us. And a group of businessmen approached us in that management planning process and said that the Tredegar Ironworks would be a spectacular place for the National Park Service to make their main visitor center and orientation point along the James River. And it was just a phenomenal idea because the Tredegar Ironworks is such a key to the story of Richmond as it mobilized for war in 1861.
0: Absolutely, Absolutely. And I think
2: Mike would uh, be able to take us from there and, and and put it into into context.
0: Thanks, Dave. Yeah, but that's a wonderful history of the Park Service. So, Mike, do take us through why why Tredegar? Why Tredegar at the center, the history of it, uh, and particularly its significance during the war?
1: Well, it's uh, it's always really remarkable to me how many people, when they come to the park, it's so easy to do. When you look at a map, you can see that the capital of the United States is Washington, D.C. The capital of the Confederacy is Richmond, Virginia, 100 miles away makes no sense, right? I will deal with this question as an interpreter on a daily basis and trying to help people understand why Richmond. And a large part of that is due to not just Tredegar, but the amazing amount of industry that exists in the Upper South and particularly in Richmond. And so it's a point well made that if you don't protect this place, if you don't make it politically important to your fledgling nation... Well, you might let it go. You might not fight as hard for it. I mean, look what you lose. You lose the large ironworks in the form of of, of Tredegar. It's making the cannon. It's rolling the ironclad plates. It's making boilers and railroad material all over the place. Uh, certainly one of the largest in the South. is not the largest in the South. Uh, one of the largest flour mills in the world. One of the largest woolen mills also in the South. Uh, all right here in Richmond, to say nothing of the uh, huge tobacco industry that uh, natively existed here. So Richmond is just chock filled with a growing industrial scene prior to the Civil War, and no doubt, even on the eve of war, people saw it that way. That this is this is our uh, this is our up and comer industrial city, and certainly one of the most important to the to the new new Confederacy. So it's almost that they had to make it their their capital rather than, the, than any other uh, any other place. So helping people understand that uh, uh, is just so easy to do when you're when you're a trader. It's sort of a half joke that I that I often make with visitors. But uh, think about how much that interpretation that, that we've all heard a million times in you know, the standard Loss cause line uh, perfectly summed up uh, in Gone with the Wind, where where Clark Gable as Rhett Butler uh, sagely says at the bar- at the uh, barbecue, "We don't have a single cannon factory in the entire South." Well, how can you say that? When you're standing there at the Tredegar Ironworks. And that's, that's exactly the point. How else do you fight the war?
0: And can you st- talk a little bit about how important Tredegar uh, was to mobilizing for war and to the Confederacy at war, Mike?
1: At the end of the war, you, know, you look back and you can see that 50% of the South's artillery was made right at Tredegar. All the ironclad plates that get rolled for the, for the ironclads, including the most famous uh, CSS Virginia. We're done right there at Tredegar. So you think about that moment when the we know the monitor is being is being built in the north and she's going to be floated and here's the the Confederacy and they've got this this ironclad plan, they're trying to do it. Uh, what if there isn't Tredegar? What if it doesn't happen when it does? You're not talking about the clash of the of the ironclads, you're talking about a US Navy rolling right up the James River. So, you know, there's one perfect example of how the war is prolonged by the efforts of, of the Tredegar Ironworks. Just right there, and that's early in 1862. But prior to the war, Tredegar had had been making cannon for the for the U.S. Navy, for the U.S. government, for several years uh, had been establishing a sort of, sort of southern reputation. I might add, uh, uh, sort of a nascent southern nationalism, the buy southern movement, by encouraging uh, the southern railroads to buy their own engines and their own rails and everything like that. Uh, So people had seen this as a particularly southern industry for years. And leading up to the war, that's the kind of thing they were doing. It made sense for them, and the owner of uh, Tredegar at the time, Joseph Reed Anderson, uh, pretty much, as soon as the war started, offered up Tredegar to the Confederate government, who did not want to buy it outright to control it as a government entity, uh, but they did essentially come to an agreement where uh, Tredegar worked for them exclusively. So everything that the Tredegar Ironworks does during the war is done for the uh, Confederate government. And so when you look at their wartime production, that's what you see.
0: Oh, thank you, Mike. It's fascinating. Were, were the other institutions you, you mentioned the the flour mill and the woolen mill and perhaps others also turned over completely or almost completely to the Confederate war effort.
1: That's a really good question. Um, I don't know. And that, uh, it's partially that I have never gone looking, but also uh, the other problem is uh, most of those institutions burned in the evacuation fire. The Gallagher flour mills went up in smoke in 1865. The Crenshaw woolen mills uh, burned in 1863, actually right in the Tredegar site. So we don't have those, those records. One of the blessings that, uh, uh, that we've been given by Treader not only surviving the, the Civil War and the evacuation fire, but surviving through into the 1950s, is that their records have been preserved, and they're at the the Library of Virginia. So you can go and get, you know, real good evidence when when you want to do some research on Tredgar that you just can't, you just can't for a lot of other places. So it's, it's tantalizing, like you like you've you've hit upon. Obviously, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could uh, find out more about these other industries? The impression that I get is, no, They, especially in the case of the flour mill, they still produce domestically. Uh, the woolen mill seems to have done a lot of private contracting as well, but no doubt about it, pretty much you know, all these industries are working for the, for the war during during the four years.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So when, when I visited Tredegar in 2003, shortly before the dedication of the Lincoln statue, which we'll talk about later, is there still some of the original building there? The Tredegar site was not totally destroyed, and were there, if that's the case, were there preservation, conscious preservation efforts made after the war to keep the site uh, uh, either in operation or as a commemorative site of some kind?
2: The, well, the Tredegar Foundry operated until
0: 1957,
2: and after 1957 it almost became deserted, and it fell into to quite a, uh, a lot of disrepair. And I think one of the the great benefits of, of having a, a company who is is the owner of a property like that and very sensitive to history is that the new market corporation who owns it currently really did take a passionate interest in, in Tredegar and continues to. But in the 1970s, uh, did a lot of work to restore some of the buildings that were there uh, including the 1861 foundry building, where the large guns were cast, and and, and some other stabilization work uh, throughout the site, which stands on about eight acres of property today. So you you have an assortment of buildings that date from a variety of years, although there still are a few buildings that either entirely or in part date uh, to the Civil War era.
0: Thanks, Dave. Very much up. Uh, so, for listeners who may not be able to visit the park, uh, take us through some of the interpretive exhibits that that people would see were they uh, able to come.
1: Well, when I have visitors at, at Tredegar, uh, we're standing outside. I always like to point out that though we we can see four buildings or so that that survive that are historical buildings, you have to always keep in mind the Treasure plant was extensive in its scope. Even by the time of the Civil War, it took up about four blocks of space down by the river riverfront. And by the time it ceased operations in the 1950s, uh, almost doubled that. So what, what you see today is only what, what survives to this day, not what once was there. Uh, by no means is, is what you see today indicative of the size of, of the, the plant in the Civil War at all. So a lot of uh, interpreted work goes into, at least in my part, goes into trying to help people paint that in their mind. What did this place look like? What did it smell like? What did it sound like uh, when it was in operation? Because so much of that is gone to us. But when you get there, one of the, one of the most fascinating things to me is that a lot of the old uh, turbines are still there, admittedly rusted. But you get a sense for how the, the power uh, came from uh, water here at Treader, how it, uh, how it was uh, just the turning shafts to make everything go. Uh, you can interpret that very, very well because, like I said, they're still there, of course, silent after all these years. But uh, back in the 90s when the uh, Valentine Riverside uh, had their museum at Tredegar, they put up an awful lot of very good, uh, I think, interpretive signs uh, that go into the uh, how the ironworks function rather than a uh, story about the Civil War or any particular era. So as you walk around the site, you have this sort of wonderful peek into the the you know, nitty-gritty of how how an ironworks would have functioned, I uh, like that quite a bit because you can go and uh, though the building's not there, understand okay what was there, uh, what happened here. Uh, for instance, uh, in the in the 1840s, there was a large strike at Treadaker, uh, which is very interesting to us because it's primarily over uh, the use of slaves at Treadaker. Uh, the company was. You know, was Putting slaves into skilled labor positions and the puddlers at the puddler mill, uh, despised this and went on strike and, uh, wrote this angry letter to the news newspaper. Uh, Anderson fired back essentially saying, uh, you fired yourself. It's one of these, these classics of, uh, uh, understatement. The heading of the, of the letter says, to my late workmen at the Traeger Ironworks. Uh, doesn't get much more plain than that, but there you can now go up to the site where this occurred and you know, talk about that. So it's very rich in terms of the ability to talk about multiple aspects of the story, not just one era and not just one site. So it's really a wonderful place, even if you never get to go inside in the buildings, just to walk around
0: and, uh, and read the signs and experience the site for yourself. Thank you, Mike. And I know that uh, both of you are very, very busy earlier this summer with uh, commemorative events from from 1862. Can Can you tell us uh, something about what what went on? What you folks were working on?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, 82 events in 60 days. That's uh, <laughs> that's that summarizes our our life for the past two months. <laughs>
0: You don't have to describe all of them, Dave, but give us a flavor of some of them.
2: No, actually, it was a great opportunity for the park to do a lot of things. And 1862 um, was certainly a a year that meant so much in in the annals of Civil War history and in, in Richmond that we really wanted to spend a lot of time focusing on the meaning of the story and, and the place. And we had a lot of those stories to tell, and, and Drury's Bluff kind of started it off. And it's almost a forgotten piece of the story in May of 62 when the Union ironclad fleet sailed up the James River and, and uh, had the goal of shelling the city into submission but were stopped at the Confederate fort uh, known as Drury's Bluff. And so there was commemorations uh, that occurred there. Um, and it was the, also the site of the first Marine Corps Medal of Honor winner, um, uh, Corporal uh, Mackey, uh, John Mackey, who was uh, on board the USS Galena. And we had the proud winner of the Medal of Honor uh, from Vietnam, a, a Lieutenant Colonel Wesley Fox, who spoke and put the entire Medal of Honor in context to his experiences and the meaning of the Medal of Honor in 1862 as compared to 1969. It was a very phenomenal way, I, th- I think, of looking at the relevancy of history today and 150 years ago. But we also wanted to bring a scholarly look at the 1862 story, and largely because the Seven Days Campaign that started in June of 62 and went through July 2nd of 1862 are often forgotten. So many history books just simply pass it by. I think Ken Burns' series uh, that he did, the wonderful series on the Civil War, glossed through it as though it was almost meaningless. So many history books look at it as a pause in between first Manassas and second Manassas. (laughs) And so we really wanted to not look at self-aggrandizement, but we wanted to really focus on the importance of, of that week in Civil War history. So uh, we invited Dr. Ed Ayers, president of the University of Richmond, for the opening bookend conversation about the importance of the seven days and put it all into context about what, it, what was at stake. What was the situation at, at, at that point during the war when here was this The largest Union army ever assembled, poised on the outskirts of Richmond, eight miles or less from the capital of the Confederacy, uh, standing opposed to an army of about 55,000 under an untried commander, Robert E. Lee. And so here we were. But what was at stake? And, And what it came down to is that Ed made this assessment of the fact that the Union army at that point could have won the war. And if they did, most likely a nation would have been reunified, but slavery would have been allowed to exist. And so there was so much standing on what was going to happen in in this period of late June 1862 outside of Richmond. And then the other bookend piece, the last of it, was Gary Gallagher, who summed it all up at the end of the commemoration in a program he entitled more important than Gettysburg, the story of the seven days. And his point was that so much turned on the seven days in terms of the war uh, was now destined to be carried on for potentially years. The casualties were going to be enormous, something that this country never envisioned. But it was going to be, after the seven days, a war that was going to fight to the end um, one way or another there there was there probably not going to be an easy resolution to this thing except on the battlefield and He made the the comparison to Gettysburg, where after Gettysburg was over, you know the Confederate Army retreated back to Virginia the- northern army followed, and basically everything was set up just as it was prior to that, so nothing really much changed strategically or tactically after Gettysburg, but that wasn't the case for the seven days. So I think in front of 700 people and C-SPAN, we really tried to put the seven days in context. And between Ed Ayers' program and Gary Gallagher's program on July 11th, we had many, many, many programs on the battlefields and in the town that focused on at on this date, at this place, at this time, so people could actually... In a, in a, in, in their own way, just follow the commemoration chronologically and be on the places where it it actually occurred. And for the first time, uh, doing some special programs about Seven Pines, of which Mike was a big part of, and other programs in the city. But Mike talked about that.
0: Yeah. Uh, Dave, that's a, a superb. Uh uh, summation. Uh, thank you very much. Can I ask, bef- before we turn to Mike, are any of these presentations online so that uh, listeners could uh, could go and learn from them?
2: Um, we were fortunate to to um, video most of, of what we did during the commemoration, and a lot of that is already posted online and on YouTube. Uh, There are numerous tours that are up and and posted. One of the programs we did was called Voices of the Storm, which was a story of the combatants and the civilians, both black and white, free and slate, who were in the middle of this 1862 cataclysmic event here in Richmond, and we, we let them tell their story. That piece is is also online, and there'll be more coming.
0: Wonderful, thank you, uh, Mike. Please do carry on from Dave's comments, and also, would you tell listeners uh, about the site that you have done this uh, fantastic Civil War Richmond site, and how folks can uh, get on it?
1: Oh yes, uh, my my labor of love. Uh, well, back in the back in the day, uh, and I mean back in the day when uh, I remember receiving in the mail the yellow pages for the internet and it was actually printed in a book. Uh, I decided to talk about the stupidity of a young historian. Uh, I'm fascinated by civil war Richmond. Let me go and find everything I can about civil war Richmond and put it up on the web, uh, for everybody to see. Now, you know, now 15 years into this, I think to myself, what on earth was I thinking, you know, the the amount of material is, is far too legion for, for one lifetime. But, uh, it's already up there. It's got a life of its own, so I'm pretty much in prison for the rest of my life. But what I've been doing is, as much as I can, is finding primary source material, uh, maps, photographs, uh, anything that's, that pertains to the Confederate capital, uh, and putting it up online uh, as I as I find it. And uh, that the site is called Civil War Richmond, uh, and it's like I say, it's been around now since uh, late 1997. So it's it's it's. In some ways, showing its age, but it's still got some uh, some great stuff up there. I'm currently rebuilding the the whole thing, so it uh, it'll have a new new feel and uh, it'll be much much easier to to access and find what you're looking for uh, as we go forward. But it's it's uh, it's really my labor of love,
0: and uh, for whatever notoriety I have as a Richmond historian, there it is. Yeah, thank you, uh, and I I can say after noodling around in the site a bit, it's it's a really fascinating site. So I encourage listeners to go there. Uh, when, when we talked the other day in, in preparation for this, um, I remember mentioning to you both uh, that I had been fascinated with reading about the the volatile and contested memory of the Civil War in, in Richmond um, over the years. Uh, and you mentioned that the National Park Service was really hard at work at integrating narratives that had been formerly really separate, segregated, perhaps we might say, and uh, mentioned uh, programs of Future of Richmond Past and the Liberty Trail. So I think perhaps it would be a good way to conclude the podcast to talk about what you're doing now, thinking out of the site, but not just on the site, and what uh, what you're doing in Richmond to tell newer stories about uh, this always volatile history?
2: Yeah, thanks for the, the question, Ed. And one thing that I, well, there's many things that I'm exceptionally proud of uh, through the course of the commemoration, but one of those that kind of surfaces to the top is a group called the Future of Richmond's Past. And we have to actually go back to um, a few years before the commemoration when, and I mentioned Dr. Ed Ayers previously, but as president of the University of Richmond, he knew we were coming into this period of the commemoration of the war, and there's always been an edge on Civil War history in Richmond, continues to be an edge, and there always will be an edge. But... I I think we came to the realization that do we want this to be an albatross around our necks, or do we actually want to be proactive and take ways to manage the story, take ownership of the full story and bring these great pieces to light that have, have been ignored for so many years. And, uh, Working with, with Dr. Ayers, a, a group of folks with me, for example, the Museum of the Confederacy um, president, um, uh, Wade Rawls, and the American Civil War Center president, Christy Coleman, um, and Paul Levingood from the Virginia Historical Society, and Ed, and I sat down together, and we, we came up with a strategy of beginning community conversations. And we decided to have a, an opening session at the at the University of Richmond, invited the community to come and we began this discussion about the commemoration. And it was very interesting that one of our speakers came up from Montgomery, Alabama, and just finished a lot of work on the civil rights trail. And he was talking about history and he, he kind of let this Freudian slip out of that, and you gotta be careful, you gotta take advantage of the minefield. He meant to say gold fields. But he was talking about the mind, unfortunately, the minefields of history, and it was really evident to us that we certainly had minefields, but we also had gold fields, and and we had not told the stories before. Um, and in this community conversation, we began looking at at the need to bring in the full breadth of Richmond Civil War history to the forefront. We then invited all of the members of the history community together, and we hit upon this concept of calling this consortium the future of Richmond's Past. And we had to look at ways of of, of making it visible, not just in in a periodic community conversation, but um, to the larger community at whole. And so we hit upon this idea of developing a program we d- had done in Richmond here probably since the late 18- 1980s called the Civil War Day. Well, we converted it to Civil War and Emancipation Day, and we had all the institutions assisting us starting two years ago, opening up every Civil War um, and civil rights entity in the, in the community free of charge, with community assistance from corporations. We actually had shuttle buses circling the entire city and connecting all of our Civil War venues together, and visitors were invited to come out and experience all of our sites um, that involved both the traditional places like the Museum of the Confederacy and our battlefield visitor centers, but also places of difficult memory uh, the slave auction sites uh, the the slave trail sites um, and it was the the first effort for the community to come together and to begin talking about all aspects of the very complicated civil war history um, that the city had to offer and to, in in my view it's been very helpful. And the commemorations that have happened, I think have been balanced um, and well attended by diverse audiences. And we haven't had um, the kind of controversy that we experienced in the past um, up to this point through, through the commemorative season.
0: Thank you, Dave, very much. Uh, and I think that is a good place for us to to conclude. Uh, I know that... that- the site will remain dynamic and your programs will continue to grow. Let me remind listeners that they can go to the website of the Richmond National Battlefield Park and also Mike Gorman's Civil War Richmond site to continue thinking about this, uh, this important issue or set of issues. We've been speaking with Dave Ruth the superintendent of Richmond National Battlefield Park, and Mike Gorman, a National Park Service ranger and historian at the park. Gentlemen, thank you. This has been a a pleasure. I've learned a tremendous amount, and this podcast is a wonderful addition to our Civil War series. Many thanks.
2: Thank you, Ed. Thank you.